Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Joanne. If you have got your Bible with you or your phone, it would be good to keep chapter 3 open. Um, So just where we're going big picture with Genesis, uh, we're going to do kind of a whistle-stop tour through, uh, now through chapter 3, and then Cain and Abel, Noah, and Tower of Babel. And then for the rest of the term up to June, I think we're going to take our time looking at Abraham. 
Uh, I did think about us doing a whistle-stop tour all the way through Genesis, but um, I'm not clever enough. And I remember when we first arrived in Australia and went to Trinity Church in Brighton, one of the first things we looked at was this really long series in Abraham. I remember really, really appreciating that, the time spent there. So that's what we'll do. But today we're in chapter 3. And I want to ask, why are things like they are? Why are things like they are? When our daughter Mib was about three years old, she picked up Sharon's iPad and she said, Your iPad's very heavy, Mum. You must have a lot of emails. So at that young age, she had a very cute but fundamentally inaccurate understanding about how emails and iPads work. I mean, you can see how she arrived at that conclusion. There's some reason. But she was still wrong. But thinking much bigger than an iPad, why is the world like it is? Why are we like we are? Because our world is full of soaring beauty that inspires us and devastating tragedy and disease that lead us to despair. And humanity, people do so much good. We're we're capable of remarkable compassion, cooperation and achievement. And yet we so easily descend into the vilest abuses of one another. So why are things like they are? Well, today's passage tells us exactly that. It gives us God's inside track on what happened at the beginning. And it helps us understand God's goodness. Understand our prideful rejection of his loving care. And the consequences for ourselves and the world. But before we get into it, you might say, come on. I mean, Genesis, a talking snake, special trees with magical fruit, Adam and Eve, fig leaves. It sounds like a myth or a fairy tale, doesn't it? Why should we bother with this account to work out why things are like they are? And really the question is, is Genesis 3 history or is it just symbolic picture language? Well, actually, that's a false dichotomy. It's actually both. It is history with symbolism. So if we read Genesis 3 alongside the rest of the Bible, how the Bible treats these chapters um, and how other bits of the Bible are similar, that's what we conclude. It's history with symbolism. Because Bible authors, uh, including the Apostle Paul, um, treat this as history, as stuff that's happened. And in lots of places in the Bible, it gives what's definitely really clearly historical narrative accounts, but with lots of symbolic language. So the use of symbolic picture language doesn't mean that it's not history. So let's read it under the assumption that it is a true account of what happened. And where the language seems to be more symbolic than literal, well, let's see how that takes us into knowing the truth more deeply what happened, rather than a knee-jerk, simplistic reaction that symbolic language means it didn't happen at all. Because actually when you look at this account, nothing else comes close to explaining humanity and the world as we find them. Nothing else comes close to explaining things as well as Genesis 3 does. So let's get into it. Your outline for today is pretty simple. The lie, the jump, and the consequences. The lie, the jump, 
and the consequences. So first of all, and the lie. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we can read later on in Revelation 12 and 20 that the serpent is Satan. Um, and in the original language, he is the, the serpent, sort of like the capital S serpent, definite article. But just within the context of this account in and of itself, we know that this serpent is crafty. So he's suspicious of him straight away. And he's a talking snake. You know, we're supposed to be weirded out by this. And we naturally revile against snakes, don't we? You know, we occasionally get a blue-tongued lizard in our garden, and when you see that pointy head and the scales, you go, and then you see his feet, and you find him some snails to eat. But it's supposed to be shocking, a serpent, that any animal, it's supposed to be shocking that any animal, let alone a snake, talks and is listened to. So he's supposed to be weirded out. Because everything so far has been, in chapters 1 and 2, has been good, 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 very good. Order out of chaos, everything moving forwards. But now there's this jolting interruption by a snake of all things. And the serpent presents God's, his one, God's one prohibition incredulously, doesn't he? Did God really say you must not eat? from any tree in the garden. As if God's one prohibition, which is misquoted, by the way, is some mean-spirited, cruel deprivation. So let's backtrack into chapter 2 and see what God really said. So chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made All kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then following on from those verses, there's all the stuff about the rivers coming out of Eden. And the idea is that Eden is the source of all the good stuff associated with those rivers. So in other words, it really was paradise. The author's telling us that Adam and Eve had more than they could ever dream of. Uh, Genesis 2.16 And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. That, literally that says, eating, you shall eat. So it's a command to live life to the full, to enjoy everything God's given them, every day a big party, enjoying God's absolute loving goodness, wanting for nothing. But if there were anything dangerous in this paradise, then you'd expect a loving, God, loving creator to warn them off it, wouldn't you? If there's anything dangerous. So chapter 2, verse 17, he does. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now when you hear that, what do you hear? I think we're tempted to hear God giving him a test, you know, leaving a loose thread just dying to be tugged at. But we must stop. Because that is starting to believe the serpent's lies. That's importing into paradise something that wasn't there yet. Sin, anxiety. 
So at this point, there is nothing to test. The band that this tree represents is, is simply a limit. It's like saying, don't juggle chainsaws or don't attempt to fly. God's saying, look, look at all this incredibly happy, full life you can live as humans. But there's one thing here that's dangerous for you. That's your sort of human limit. So leave that out. If for some bizarre reason you chose to reject life and choose some other way, that will kill you. But the serpent twists this paradise of positive, um, which has one safety feature, into a lie about God holding out on them, about God stopping them discovering who they really are, distracting from God's generosity, and the simple fact that everything was just great as it was. The serpent plants the lie that God is not good. Plants the lie that God is not good. So back to chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the serpent lies about God's character, making him out to be a tyrant, making it out like we're his slaves, slaves capable of so much more, if only we could break free. So he lies about God, he lies about the consequences. Verse 4, he says, Literally, it says, dying, you shall not die. Saying, this dying, it's not a big deal. It's, it's worth this trivial dying thing to experience the full humanity that God is denying you. And he lies about the benefits. You'll be like God, he says. And here's the great irony. Adam and Eve are already like God because that's how God created them, in his image. Um, have you ever heard of Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting? Did you have that here? It was a TV show in the 80s. This guy, he spoke really gently like this. He was pretty famous. Anyway, Bob Ross was pretty famous. And I came across this next picture. You can get a Bob Ross waffle maker. <laughs> Makes a waffle that looks like Bob Ross's head. Don't know how weird that would feel, eating his big afro. Thanks, Tim. We could say that way. Well, Adam and Eve weren't made in Bob Ross. Adam and Eve were made in God's image. So that means they were like, we're like God in so many ways. Creative. We have thought and will. We've got personhood. God gave them the job of bearing his image and making babies to fill the world with his image as image bearers, to rule over it and to look after it under his authority. So in chapter 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's the irony. Adam and Eve are like God already in ruling over every living creature that moves on the ground. And here they are listening to the serpent, the one that's closest to the ground, telling them... What's what? 
So in the very act of speaking to them, the serpent is making them less like God than they already are, and yet promising them they will be more like God. It's all twisted. What the serpent says is, in reality, objectively, utter nonsense. But it sounds so convincing, sounds so attractive. So we need to ask ourselves, what lies about God are we swallowing? What lies about sin are we swallowing? Well, did you notice how Satan and Eve, a little bit, misquote God's words? And the way the serpent frames what God says means it could be quoting anything and make it sound bad. So ask yourself, are you misquoting God or believing misquotes about him? Because lots of objections to Christianity can be put under that heading, God is not good. And we can find ourselves, like Eve, questioning God's goodness. And that's why we've got to keep returning to his word, keep returning to the Bible to see what it actually says and what God is actually like. And the more we do that, the more we'll be able to spot a lie about him. And the more we'll be able to enjoy with thankfulness his actual, real, objective goodness and truth. We need to be aware of lies about God and we need to be aware of lies about sin. You know, it's not that bad. God doesn't really mind. Look at what you're missing out on. Sin's a con. Sin offers, for example, sin offers the adulterer the thrill and the intimacy but doesn't show him the small print of the broken-hearted spouse of the abandoned children. Sin offers the freedom of expressing who you really are deep inside without letting you in on the secret that actually it's from your heart that most of your problems come. Keep returning to God's word. Keep praying so that you don't believe lies about God and you don't believe lies about sin. Because sin convinces you to give up life in order to embrace death. What Adam and Eve are about to do makes no sense. Now, the heading for this chapter, if you've got an NIV, the heading for this chapter says, The Fall. I don't think that's right. I think that's too passive. It makes it sound like God has negligently left some dangerous cliff in Eden and um, they just sort of passively fall off it. Not really their fault. But that's not what happened. So I'm going to call it, our next section, The Jump. Not the fall, the jump. So let's pick it up at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and also pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Good for food and pleasing to the eye. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 2, verse 9, we've read already. The Lord made all kinds of trees, all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So they already had an endless supply of these things. But the kicker for Eve is it's desirable for gaining wisdom. This reach 
for knowing good and evil is a reach to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. The Bible doesn't let us know why God allowed evil to come into the world or how it came to be there at this early stage. But the Bible does show that God alone gets to say what is good and what is evil. And it's our job to listen to him to know which is which. But Adam and Eve taking the fruit is them deciding not to trust that God has their best interests at heart, despite all the evidence to the contrary. It's a prideful assertion that, actually, I want to determine for myself what's best for me. It's not good enough to be totally and utterly cared for. It's not good enough to be completely fulfilled if it still means being under God's rule. And that's the heart of my sin and the heart of your sin. Rebellion against God's rule because we believe a lie, because we fail to believe the truth, and because we pridefully think we'll do a better job of saving ourselves, thanks very much. So that's the kind of capital S sin that drives all our sins, the outworking of that. And us adults are very sophisticated at covering this up, aren't we? Even from ourselves. But we see it clearly in children, don't we? So we knew a child who, he'd been, he was a toddler, he'd been taught um, sign language before he could talk, and he'd been taught not to go near the fireplace because it could hurt. And I can remember like it was yesterday, this boy, and the look of weighing up the rebellion on his face as he stood next to the fire going, no hurt. No hurt, but still considering touching it. Because we're not, the, we're not the ones who were first to bring sin into the world, but we don't half carry on the tradition, don't we? Not a fall, a jump. And we must be careful not to make excuses for Adam and Eve here. Both of them equally culpable. See, some people argue that it's because they were given a will and the ability to make choices. But that would be to suggest that there's something missing in the existence God had gifted humanity up to this point. And there wasn't. So don't import anxiety about their existence into Genesis chapter 2. Anxiety only comes as they rebel in chapter 3. With the freedom of choice that they genuinely had, they would always reasonably say, let's trust God because everything's so great uh, rather than the serpent who's just all he's given us is doubt. Trying to explain away why Adam and Eve did what they did is trying to diminish the awfulness of sin. There was no excuse. Sin has no reason to it, no logic, no risk-benefit analysis because such orderliness is good, belongs to God's things. Well, sin is prideful, it's dumb, it's sneering, and it's rebellion from beginning to end. Sin is evil. We were not the first to bring sin into the world, but we don't half carry on the tradition. So where does this leave Adam and Eve? Where does it leave us? 
And how does it help us understand the world as we find it today? The consequences, our final section, the consequences. Well, for Adam and Eve, there's immediate breakdown in relationship with each other and with God. So chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve had to this point been simply about who they were in relation to God. But now, now they've sought to be their own gods. So they're in competition with each other. They're like rival gods. So what was a good thing, their innocent nakedness, you know, representing their total harmony, total mutual trust. Well, now their nakedness preaches to each other that they're not in total control, that they're different to each other, that they need each other, and they become ashamed of their nakedness. So their grand age of self-rule begins with pathetic attempts to cover up with fig leaves. Have you seen a fig plant? The leaves are quite small, aren't they? All they've got to cover up with are the good things that God has created for them. There's certainly no help from the serpent, is there? So excuses are made. Eve is blamed. The serpent's blamed. Even God is blamed. But God can't be fooled. To both Adam and Eve, he says that this is something you have done, not something that has happened to you. And so in the last 10 verses of chapter 3, God brings judgment on creation. I mean, I suppose God could, if it had wanted to, start it all over again. I mean, the original creation came from chaos, came from nothingness. But in his grace and mercy, God doesn't destroy us. Everything remains, but everything is changed. Everything remains, but everything is changed. Why is the world like it is? Well, because of us, because of our sin, because of our sin's own inherent consequences, and because we're morally responsible for and accountable to God for our sin. And the world's like it is because of God bringing his judgment on creation. His judgment affects everything we experience. So work is no longer purely a joy. It wears us out because it comes with frustration and difficulty built in. The gift of bearing children, still a joyful thing, but now with bitterness and pain mixed in. The goodness of our desire for each other, now distorted, Adam seeking to abuse his position and dominate Eve. Eve's desire, a desire to rule over Adam. Romans 8 puts it like this. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. In hope. See, Genesis chapter 3 is not the end. We've seen God's grace in not ending things there and then. We see God's grace in him clothing Adam and Eve in something better than fig leaves. And there are a couple of things in Genesis 3 that point us forward to God restoring us into relationship with him and restoring his creation to even better how, than how things were. 
So one thing point forward first is his judgment of the serpent. So verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. One thing I've missed from chapter 3 before is that in verse 15, that our being enemies of Satan wasn't a given. Our being enemies of Satan is part of God's grace. He made us, put us in enemies, in enmity against each other. So in his mercy, Eden isn't the start of some nightmare world where we throw our lot in with Satan, kit and caboodle. Now the serpent is cursed and his plan to co-opt us into his war against God will ultimately fail. I think that helps us understand our own horror at our own sin, sometimes even as we commit it. And the promise is one of Eve's offspring will crush the serpent. In other words, Satan will be finally defeated by a human being. And we'll see over Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday how Jesus fulfills this promise. So that's one beacon of hope in chapter 3. Secondly, did you notice it's cherubim, so weird heavenly creatures that keep humanity banished from being directly with God in the garden and from the tree of life. But it's cherubim that later on symbolically guard the Holy of Holies in the temple. So the place where God's direct presence is at that time. So in 1 Kings 6.23 we get, For the inner sanctuary he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each ten cubits high. So it points, those cherubim point us forward to the way that humans get to go past cherubim to God's direct presence by a suitable sacrifice being made. So again, over Easter, we'll see how Jesus fulfills this role in restoring us to God's presence, getting us past the cherubim. So let's sum up then. Why are things like they are? We're made in God's image, so we're brilliant. We shine so brightly in creation, like God in many ways. But we're prideful rebels, completely, unreasonably sneering and turning away from God's good and rightful rule over us. And so we also bring evil, chaos and destruction. Creation is God's good, good creation. It's got soaring beauty, and we find purpose in stewarding it for God's glory. But God has also cursed it in partial judgment, so it's got inbuilt frustration, danger, and death. That's why the world is like it is. So what can we take away for us today from this most ancient of histories? Remember, don't fall for Satan's lies about God or about sin, or about ourselves. Get to know God by knowing his word, the Bible, so that you can always spot when God is being misrepresented, so you can know what God is really like. Let God's word take root in you and grow, so that when you are fed lies, when they even feel right, you'll know that they're wrong. Don't dress up sin. Sin is revolting. 
Sin is evil. It never delivers on its deceptive promises. And Satan doesn't stick around to help you pick up the pieces afterwards. And finally, remember God's grace. He could have started all over, started over again. And when the frustrations and the suffering that his curse on the world bring feel overwhelming, well, remember. Remember how they wake us up to the danger that sin puts us in. They're a bit like my smartwatch. It goes off at 10 to the hour, every hour, to tell me that if I don't get off my backside and do something different, I'm going to be in trouble. That's what this, the suffering of God's ju- the, caused by God's judgment on creation reminds us. Sin is going to bring us into trouble unless we turn to him in faith. And remember how God's judgment on creation shows his goodness. It shows his steadfast opposition to evil. And it points to his promise to redeem the world through Jesus. The promise of not a garden in the future, but a city. And we'll finish with these words from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of this great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in this city and his servants will serve him. That's our future. So we'll finish then uh, with a confession. Some words of confession, a prayer of confession. Um, to help us confess our sin and trust in Jesus to save us from them. I can't remember. Did I do a slide for this, Tim? I did. Right. So you can join in this if you want to make this your prayer. God of grace, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped up in our own concerns By our actions and our attitudes, we praise what you condemn. Help us to admit our sin so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.